1: theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist
0: Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Working Artist Project. Tonight is a very special night for uh, quite a few reasons, actually. And, uh, hey, oh, Greg, what's up, man? How you doing? Welcome. <laughs> uh, oh, Darian Douglas, how are you? Um, <laughs> man, how's it going up in New York? Oh, man, everything is great. But I know it's better down there because it's almost Mardi Gras day. Oh, I thought we were celebrating President's Day today. What? I mean, no, nobody knows what, what that party. is. Girl. I thought
2: that was what the party was all about. It was President's Day, y'all. Come on. Let's nobody knows. Donald Trump. Okay, wait, Whoa, that's not the president. <laughs> oh, I'm just kidding. I mean, we don't want this to become political. No,
0: this is not political. This is not political. So this is better than politics could ever be. And tonight we have a very special guest, one of your good friends, and and uh, one of my, my new best friends, Miss Ashley... Okay, I don't want to mess up. There we go. Shibankaray.
2: Shibankaray. Exactly. And so we're, we're very honored to have Shibankaray joining us this evening. She's an extremely accomplished um figure in the New Orleans community. Uh, Just to name a couple of her responsibilities, uh, she is the vice president of the Jazz Education Network. She is the collaborative action strategist at the Artist Corps here in New Orleans. Uh, She's also the director of learning and development at the Upbeat Academy Foundation. Hold up, there's more, there's more. She's the education specialist at the New Orleans uh, Jazz Museum. And uh, also she's currently serving as the music curator at the Trombone Shorty Foundation, and that—that's not even touching like the actual fantastic musician that actually Ashley, Ashley is. She's a wonderful trombone player, songwriter, and uh, performer. So yo, let's let's welcome Ashley Shibankare to the show this evening. Hi. <laughs> hey, what's up? I how? just
1: like feel like I appeared. I'm like, hey. <laughs> I appreciated the banter about my last name, Greg. You nailed it. I think it's from years of knowing each other.
2: <laughs> it is. It is. It's. It's actually. It's. It's sitting in a wind ensemble back at Loyola, and and hearing uh, what was his name, uh, Doc Abar. Doc Abar. Talk to the because tr- he would always say, "Trombones, y'all sound so good," and it's all all because of, uh, of Ashley And I remember. <laughs>
0: Man, it's funny because I I sat here and practiced your name over and over and over. I asked Greg. He told me, and I, I'm sorry. I still messed it up, but...
1: It's okay. But we, right, it's right. a hard <laughs> word. It's a mouthful.
0: I got it now. Ashley. Ashley Shabankare. Trombonist.
2: There we go. Ashley. Ashley, you just, you just dressed so festively. I just I mean, felt I feel like, like I should be dressed festive oh today. God, I'm, I'm going to have to step it up myself, too. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, oh shit. Sure. <laughs> If you're listening to the podcast right now, Greg, Greg is uh, putting on a velvet cape with Dalmatian
2: spots. Oh, on and he just am, put on a, a crown. King.
1: He's a full king this <laughs> this Lundy Gras evening. Yeah, it's,
2: it's time. I'm getting ready for my big day tomorrow. It's Mighty Gras tomorrow. Okay. 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 <laughs> happy Mighty Ashley, happy Ashley, how are you? How's it going?
1: You know, I'm good. I mean... Feeling a little bit of like a glittery void because of not being able to go out for Mardi Gras. I mean, let's be honest about that. Um, But otherwise good because I've just been crafting things in my Mardi Gras sadness.
2: (laughs) <laughs> okay, so we have to we have to dig into it. So why do you do. why do you love Mardi Gras? I mean, we have a, a bunch of people who are not from New Orleans, and and I'm sure they have um, their own ideas of why Mardi Gras is so great. But you're a real local, and, and I, I feel like you're gonna have the appropriate way of breaking down like the magic of Mardi Gras.
1: Okay. I feel like to start, the obvious child is parades, right? We all know that there's a parade. We all know that there's beads being thrown from a parade. But the true essence in the parade is the music happening within it. Like you just see all the heart and the soul and the energy of students just practicing their hearts out. But if you're someone like me, um, obviously the music piece is a big piece of it. And who doesn't go to parades for bands? If you say that you're going to parades for beads, you are wrong, and I will <laughs> tell you you're wrong. Uh, but
2: <laughs> spoken like a true New Orleanian.
1: <laughs> but I go to parades. I mean, I'm in a dance troupe, um, and so for me, it's it's a piece of it is like the camaraderie between one another within community. It's this whole. Like even in dance troupes, even in in other aspects of Mardi Crowd culture, there's like a whole level of tradition passing going on. Of like, here's the festivity. Here's the thing that brings us together. Um, and it it's like definitely the way that I jump started myself into community, into New Orleans, and like an understanding of like deep a deeper understanding of culture. Of like, oh okay what we do is because like in dance troupes, is because of the baby dolls. Like there's a whole legacy and tradition that's just passed on. So uh, my summary of Mardi Gras, you come for the bands, not the beats, and it's a way to bring together community. So it's more than just beats.
0: <laughs> I, I, I love that answer, Ashley. And you touched on something that I think uh, is elusive to people who don't live in New Orleans because it's, it's unique that the culture is the most important thing in New Orleans. You know, when when you're a transplant, you move to New Orleans, everybody's like, you gotta get with the culture. And you are a transplant, correct?
1: I am, so most people don't realize I'm a transplant. Uh, I was born in San Diego and then I moved all over the U.S. as a kid. And this is honestly the longest I've ever lived in one place. So like, for me, it's in a weird way, it's like when people are like, where are you from? I'm like, well, I'm not from New Orleans, but I feel like I'm from New Orleans because it, I've been here for so long, entrenched in this culture. So, yeah.
0: They had, the New Orleans adopted you. You from there now?
1: Yeah, I got, that? I got adopted. <laughs> I got like officially adopted.
2: <laughs> did did you originally? Did you first come to New Orleans uh, when you were attending college? I did. Adela? Yeah, I did. So what, what did you think of New Orleans at that time? I mean, you came. It's such an interesting time too. I that did. was like right, right in the midst of the Katrina rebuilding. And- yeah,
1: I mean, it was like. Immediately afterwards, uh, it, it was interesting for me. I remember coming down from my audition for Loyola, and it's obviously not the New Orleans that people had known before. And I remember my mom being like, Is this where you want to go to college? I'm like, Yeah. She, like <laughs> there is <was, laughs> there is something in my face, like the second we got on campus, the second we were walking around, that I think she recognized this moment where I felt at ease. And I think another part of that for me like as a middle Eastern woman having like been in Texas before having been in places like Idaho before was like, Oh shit. I am an, oops. Can I cuss on this? Absolutely. Podcast? Absolutely.
2: absolutely. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> you, ju- you just did. So I guess, I guess we can't <laughs> just keep in mind. You have all your, your the precious students watching and
1: no, they're, they're used to this. Um, <laughs> um, there was just this moment that I, you know, I think part of that realization was that I was surrounded by other like black and brown people again. And there's just this moment that clicked for me where I was like, I feel comfortable. I feel comfortable in my skin here. And like, that was like a weird revelation to have, um, going to a city, going to an audition, feeling that sense of comfort um, and realizing in how much that I had missed that sense of feeling and comfort.
2: Yeah, without, without a doubt, like, you know, I think that ties into what you were, you were commenting on about the, the, the glory of Mardi Gras. And, you know, I, I completely agree with you. It's something that New Orleans does that, that I, I've come to just, I guess I took for granted kind of, uh, just, just not being able to see it because I, I've spent so much of my life here, but having traveled so much, the community here in New Orleans is one of the most beautiful aspects of being a New Orleanian. Um, from something like Mardi Gras to again like coming to Loyola and and being part of the music community and and now you know you you, you pretty much are a local. It's, it's funny like when I when I I mentioned um, I, I guess I posted on Instagram that you were going to be our guest and I had like three or four um, just. Students like they were like, I love Miss Bacare. She's awesome. <laughs> so I was like, that's how that's how, you know, you like deep in the community when you have like the kids like, oh, yeah, Miss Ashley, she's the best. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> so so how so maybe we can like use this as our segue uh, into your work as a as an educator. Yeah. And so how how did you get into a, a education here in New Orleans and, and what what drives that passion in you?
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I came to Loyola. Actually, I should backtrack a little bit. I did not think I was gonna go into music. I'll I'll start by saying that. Are you serious? Yes, I'm totally serious. My original trajectory, I'd already been accepted to a bunch of other universities for, um, what was I going into? I was going into law. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I was gonna go into, I wanted to be a lawyer. Can you all imagine me as a lawyer? That would be, I think you'd
2: be a great lawyer, yeah. honestly. I mean, you'd maybe. Be I feel
1: like yeah. I would be just like, come on, the, to- justice, <laughs> the justice system's totally messed up. Let's go. Like, that would be me the whole time. Uh, you have
2: to lose the pom-pom earrings. Bro. I would. i would probably be like,
1: that's not professional. And I'd be like, screw you. It is professional. Uh, <laughs> but I had gotten accepted to other universities not on a music track. And then at the very last second, I changed my mind. And I said, you know what? I want to go into music education and just switched really quickly and did so many last minute auditions at schools that it was a little obscene. Um, It was interesting how quickly I just was like, screw it. um, No, I'm switching. Uh, And so it really came from, I had a music theory teacher in high school that actually made me flip my script, uh, of wanting to switch from where I thought I was going to go to, to where I ended up. So I went to Loyola for music education as my bachelor's and, um, was the crazy person that convinced them that they should allow me to do a music education, music industry studies, double major. (laughs) That was dumb. Um, it was dumb and smart. Uh, who knew it was both applicable at the same time. So I got started really in that sense of like trying to train myself to become a music teacher from going to Loyola. And um, I did end up teaching in some of the Catholic schools here in New Orleans, you know, started applying towards working within the public schools in New Orleans, but quickly started realizing how much I was not loving the systems that were in place here in New Orleans, at least for music educators. You know, there was... A lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, a lot of uphill battles, because in the post-Katrina music education climate, we're talking most of your schools becoming charters, most of your schools not understanding or appreciating the culture that was involved for these programs and the legacy of these programs that originally existed. And I was becoming, to be honest, really disillusioned with that and um uh, Ended up where I got a job over at Preservation Hall. They had asked me while I was still like figuring out, am I going to go teach at this school? Am I going to go teach at this school? Hey, do you want to help us start up our foundation? I was like, oh, that sounds cool. If I can combine my loves of music and live entertainment with these amazing culture bearers and musicians and my elders with music education... That sounds amazing, and so I kind of ended up in this whole space of like nonprofit music education in this totally off the beaten pathway, <laughs> like a very unintentional way for sure.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. dope because that's exactly what we do. We're a nonprofit, and we, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're we're out here trying to educate kids. And, and I'm interested to to know how some things that you're thinking about in this new climate. Uh, of of music education, you know that it it's now online, and and more specifically, like how do you think it's gonna uh, be integrated into into the process going forward after COVID? Now now that yeah. we know that we can do it,
1: you know, I think all of us are recognizing that being online is not going away. Yeah. Um, but in the context of music education, I think we're in this really pivotal moment of decolonization and indigenization Mm. of our music education culture. And as that relates back to new Orleans, I think we're seeing this really interesting shift for the community to realize how much of their community and culture hasn't been happening in the same format and how we provide this back in this format. Mm. And then related to that in terms of the technology piece I think that music education is finally catching up with music technology Uh, and having worked in this like music technology space where I've done music technology over the years for music education. I think we're finally seeing everyone going, Oh, you mean we have to teach our kids how to play their instruments and also how to set up a microphone and (laughs) also like how to show up for a gig properly, but also how you can do this all at home because at the end of the day, the model is being a DIY musician.
0: Exactly. So
1: I I think we're going to see a lot more integration, more so of the industry and technology, more than anything else, within mm-hmm. music education.
0: Yeah, you know, you know, one thing I've, I've been thinking about that uh, this format has highlighted, and, and I think Greg has thought about this too, is is uh, some kids can't afford the microphones, some kids can't afford a computer and so all of a sudden you got this 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 chasm you know with the kids over here who have everything they have logic and a a macbook and then this kid has this other kid who is equally talented has nothing and i and i think that's the challenge that we have to figure out to over, how to overcome going forward uh have you encountered that or do you have any ideas
1: oh 100% i mean i'll, I'll start out by saying I believe that the number in terms of the disparities with technology at the start of this school year was 9,000 students without accessibility in Orleans Parish. It's a huge number. I mean, that's about like a, a fifth of our students at the start of the school year without technology access. And we know it, and this could be any myriad of things whether it's internet connection, a computer, um, anything of the sort. Uh, and so thinking about how, we help students learn in this process, I think a big part of it is having a little bit of student agency in place. So are we asking our students at the start of the school year what they have access to? And are we doing our due diligence to figure out how we can provide them with these tools, especially as nonprofits or especially as, honestly, the schools themselves? How do we find this way to connect them with something? Um, You can definitely do things like, you know, using your phone to record stuff. And in fact, like GarageBand on your phone these days is pretty impressive. Um, Seems like today a lot more of our students have more accessibility to cell phones than anything else. And so finding ways that you can make the programming accessible to what they have available to them is key in this process. Um, To your point about students not having microphones, I always love starting out showing them that they don't need all this fancy stuff. Like you can do it on a really bare bones level um, and you should learn how to do it on a bare bones level before you grow into all these other, you know, frills that you have within your programming. Um, but I, I think this actually is a larger piece back on the state of education in the US period, <laughs> because this disparity was so great. Um, and this disparity was even more so in communities where, uh, in particular, Black and Brown communities, where uh, tax dollars are not going to schools on the same level as more quote unquote affluent white neighborhoods would be. So, you know, we should also be looking back on the ways that our structures were set up because these structures have ultimately caused some of these disparities.
2: Like how, how in today's New Orleans with like the internet and the access of technology, do you maintain the things that make New Orleans education so unique to New Orleans? Like when you talk about like the, the community, the ancestors, the elders, the, um, I, I, I don't know how, I, I, th- I think that directly ties in with the the idea of decolonization because I don't think education works in the same way in other places.
1: It doesn't. <laughs>
2: but how, and how do we keep that even though we've moved online? Because so much of that, that education comes from just sitting in the room with, you know, sitting with like someone like Roger Lewis or, yes. you know, something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of it, especially for educators right now, it's like, who can I call up to bring in the room with my students to just talk to them, you know, like much like we're doing right now, I think um, Zoom has actually provided us with a really interesting space or Google meets or whatever platform you like using, it doesn't matter. They're all the same in some context, but, um, it's brought into light this way that you can actually bring elders to you. Um, Of course, there's this own level of conversation around how we make sure our elders also have access to technology because the um, technology disparities are not just with young people. They're also with our elders too. Um, But it provides this unique space that anyone, any elder, any culture bearer from that's living in any part of the U.S. right now, because let's be honest, a lot of folks moved during this time too, can be with you um, in this space. So to your question about like how we decolonize education and also the way that our education system set up, it's interesting because when I talk about what we do here in New Orleans, about how culture bears are part of it and how, yes, you have a music educator, but that music educator invites other folks to come in because they recognize the power of voices, the power of community. People think I'm crazy. <laughs> People are like, what do you mean you do that? And I'm like, you listen to your elders. Like, I don't know how else to describe that other than we respect our you know, our elders, we respect our community members, we respect those that have been steeped in these traditions. Um, so as we think about decolonizing, I think a big part of it is making sure that the stories of those that are passing along these traditions are the ones that we amplify and elevate in the classrooms first. Um, the other things like that we know of, like, you know, (laughs) things will come because of it, like ear training. Like, let's face it, ear training in this city is way different than ear training in any other city. I wish I like was given this form of ear training when I was a kid. (laughs) Like I, (laughs) I think about some of these things and how for most traditional music education, how sterile it is. Sterile seems like the most appropriate word to describe it. It's like, here's a piece of music and we're going to read it. Okay, and you did a good job. Great, good for you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, there's no soul to that because that's the way that it was passed on to them. And that's the way that they're going to keep passing it on. And I think that's part of this conversation is how do you interject more voices into the room?
2: and and i, and I love I, I love i absolutely love the the point you just brought up but you know it's it's funny cuz like then on the the flip side of things something that i worry about for some of my students is that sometimes they almost become too new orleans and 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 I, and I mean that in like just in the most beautiful way possible but but again like then then it's like you still have to leave new orleans and know how to interact and communicate with people in that dialect and in that you know that terminology that the rest of the world is dealing with. And so I think sometimes, you know, part of the challenge as an educator in New Orleans is like, again, like bringing back the stories of the ancestors and, and bringing the community in and, and learning how to uh, exist in the vernacular of New Orleans, but then also preparing the students to be successful in Paris, be successful in New York, be successful in LA. And, and I've always found that to be probably like the, the hardest tightrope to walk in this city uh, in terms of education. Yeah.
1: It's a delicate balance for sure, and it it's it's hard to know like how far of the line that you've crossed on both sides because both sides are are important. To your point, you know, I I can count so many times where I got gigs over other people because I was a better reader and I could read down a chart better than someone else, and recognizing that is a delicate balance um, between the two.
0: Yeah, I I would say to that that any person coming from the South. It's hard to get them to see from from a certain demographic. Sometimes it's hard to get them to see outside of what they can see. So the answer to that is to show them people that look like them, achieving the things that you think that they could also achieve. You know what I mean? So that's where representation comes in. Like representation matters. Like show them a person like Roger Lewis, who has traveled the world and existed in many uh arenas musically you know what i mean like try to bring like ashley was saying like bring those types of people in uh in the community who have achieved that and then the kid knows then oh i can do it too you know or i should be i should be reaching further uh past myself so that i can accomplish something bigger
2: you know what i mean that's that's what i would say yeah Um, without a doubt so Ashley, so, you you know, um, so you have so many hats that you're wearing these days. And and I, I was wondering if you could tell me, you know, you you were, um, I, I know you have like a big, big program coming up with the Trombone uh, Shorty Foundation that you all just launched, uh, I believe it was like last week, two weeks ago.
1: It got postponed. So it got pushed back a little bit because of this cold Mardi Gras.
2: <laughs> oh, it got pushed back. Can we talk about it?
1: I don't know if we can like fully talk about it. I could like hint at it. Oh,
2: maybe. Can, we, can you hint at it just a little bit? I can bit?
1: hint at it. I mean... <laughs> there's going to be a, a new platform that's coming out um so that connects students with new orleans musicians and that oh, music we're talking about here that's what's about. up that's Definitely. the hint oh, okay <laughs> awesome
2: that's awesome right. so can, so can you tell us about a little bit about the shorty foundation how it was started uh and, and like maybe some of the like what is your what are your responsibilities yeah, over um, there?
1: So my responsibility over there, I am currently working as their music curator. So really finding the ways that we're connecting individuals with musicians um, and and really making that connection, like that that same connection that we're talking about with New Orleans music and New Orleans culture, like the way that it is taught. You know, sometimes it's not applicable reading it on a page, um, but This is obviously the namesake foundation of Trombone Shorty. Uh, And so really with the intention of um, perpetuating traditions in the ways that Troy was taught. And so uh, the flagship program for them is the Shorty Academy, which meets on Mondays. And this year has been happening virtually where the students are coming in, doing these incremental lessons on Mondays. Um, And they also have a music business school. So they're doing a little bit of both worlds um so super cool organization one of my many hats i wear one of the more one of the more recent hats that i started wearing like this hat this is really the <laughs> recent hat i started wearing
2: yes. <laughs> i gotta ask you is miss mo still over there miss mo
1: yeah she is
2: miss <laughs> uh, you know, mo and i go way back and if, she, if she's watching this is my shout out miss mo you know like i'm gonna call you We're gonna hang out one day soon <laughs> she told she taught me everything i know about clarinet Actually, I so love it. <laughs> since
0: since you, you're you doing all these different things, you're with Pres Hall, Trombone Shorty, all, all these other uh, people. How are you balancing yourself with, with all yeah,
1: that? Yeah, it's it's really weird. You know, I, I'll start by saying up until April of last year, I had worked full-time for 13 years for Preservation Hall and Preservation Hall Foundation. And then of course, because of COVID, things definitely shifted. And I moved into this space of... Um, that like contract worker life space where I just put it out in the universe, hey, I'm here, I'm available and I wanna support you and the good work that you do. Um, And I think it's one that I am still learning how to balance. You know, I had already figured out how to balance that life of like, I'm working here full time, I'm a musician, I am on boards, I like work with Jen. And it's that same sort of thing, but I think it feels different that that balancing act because I'm working from home and because I'm literally looking at these same four walls all the time and my background's not changing and I'm literally here in the same space all the time. And so it's a it's a weird, delicate balance. And you know, I started actually doing something for myself recently to help myself proactively attempt to avoid burnout by having one day a week where I don't take zoom calls. Um, so on Fridays, I don't take zoom calls. If you try to set up a meeting with me on a Friday, I will tell you no. Um, (laughs) and like, it's my own personal boundaries. So I can actually get a lot of the work that we talk about in meetings that now have to happen on zoom or things that, you know, we thought maybe should have been an email now happen on zoom. (laughs) 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 And so it, I'm finding ways to like actually set the balance up for myself more than I had in the initial phases. Um, But I think it's worth noting that like in this time of working with nonprofits, we're responding to everything that's immediate. So there's a lot of stuff that feels like it's on fire all the time because we're in a global health pandemic. And then there's like the real practical work. And it's an extremely difficult balance because we know things happen all the time at random. Just because of the situations that our community has been put in, and we are constantly having to juggle the someone you know is at risk of being unhoused, or like someone is at risk of not having their basic human needs at because of this time frame. So it's a very strange, delicate balance between the two of figuring out how to respond to the what's on fire. And how to keep doing the work and how to sustain yourself at home and mentally and physically during this time.
0: You you are also a, f- a fundraising genius, right? Did I, I, did I Are <laughs> we
1: gonna say genius now? That's cool. I'll take that. That's cool. what I heard. That's what I heard.
0: Cause I I, I think I'll you take that. You you have <laughs> done fundraising for Roots of Music, and I'm sure you've done it for other people too, right?
1: I haven't done it for roots, but I've done it for a bunch of other folks. Okay. Right. Um Yeah. I feel like I had to learn it out of necessity. <laughs>
0: okay. Like what are some yeah. tricks tricks of the trade for as far as like developing uh, like fundraising chops?
1: I think part of it starts from knowing the organization that you're working with and being excited about it. Because I can tell you what, I've been pulled on to do grants for some folks And if I wasn't excited about the work, the work that I was doing wasn't as great as the work I was doing for the organization I was excited about. And so you have to be excited about the mission and the programs that are being done to really be a good grant writer and a good fundraiser. Because the more excitement you show out to the people that you're talking to, the better it's going to be. And also knowing the voice of said organization. We all obviously communicate in our own voices but fundraising language is its own balancing act. You know, it's like um, finding the delicate balance between here's the program that's happening or here's the mission work that we're doing. And, you know, here's the ask. You know, it, it, it's not as conversational as our organization really needs money right now. Give me the money. Because- <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's what I want to say. Hey, just yeah, give that's, me all your money right Honestly, now.
1: <laughs> that's what every fundraiser wants to say. We all just want to say, please just give me the money because (laughs) this dance is not super fun, but we can't say that. (laughs) It's a, it's a weird, it's a weird space. Uh, But a lot of it comes down to really building relationships. I mean, at the end of the day, fundraising takes time, development takes time and it, it all stems back to relationships in the same way that we build relationships with our community members. Like, the fundraising community, the development community, the people in your community that are ultimately going to support you, you need to build those relationships too and extend that um, you know, that network out to them, extend that net out to them um, beyond just the people that uh, you're serving within your community. You have to bring in the people that you want to support your community too.
2: Totally. Um, just, just out of curiosity, have you, have you worked with any organizations like from the, from day one kind of situation, or do you always find yourself kind of coming in like a couple years into, um, the growth of a, an organization?
1: I've worked with a few organizations from square one. Um, you know, Prez Hall foundation was obviously one of them. Uh, and I've worked with numerous organizations to get them started up. I, I think I've, at this point I've helped, three organizations start from the ground up. But a lot of the time I'm coming in, maybe right after organizations have founded, submitted the documents, you know, got that exciting IRS notification letter, which we all know how exciting that is. And if you have not applied to become a nonprofit before, let me just say the moment that you get the IRS letter in the mail is one of the most gratifying days of your life. Like, because it's so much work going into it, so much like free work going into it and people don't realize how much love goes into that process and also how much confusion goes into that process.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We, we got we got to shout out the people at, at the Ella Foundation for helping us uh, yeah. navigate yes. all of that, that paperwork when we tried to uh, start, you know, get, get our 501c3 status yeah. and they, they really helped us out. They're also a wonderful nonprofit. Um, but, you know, y- you said that you helped the uh, Preservation Hall start from the ground up. And I was wondering, like, you know, with Prez Hall, that must be a very different experience. Um, Calling someone saying like, hi, you know, um, I work for, I'm calling from Preservation Hall. Would you, you know, consider donating versus like, uh, hi, I just started my nonprofit last week. Would you mind? We need $10,000. Well,
1: know, it's funny. You'd actually be surprised. Like I remember the early days of the foundation, people were like, wait, what do you mean? Is it like the venue? Can I just like buy tickets? And that's a write-off. And it's like, no, it's separate. And having that constant conversation, they're like, oh, okay. But like, what do you do? Is it just the concerts? And you're like, no. <laughs> so There are their own set of challenges, even for organizations that have been established for some time that move into the nonprofit space. I think it for anyone, it's confusing. It's challenging. People always want to know, why are you asking me for money? Uh, (laughs) It's my best way to put it.
2: (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's, I feel like that's like one of the bigger challenges for me personally. Like I just, I just hate opening up my email and like, you know, open it, you know, please donate, please donate. Hey, it's, it's, you know, January, uh, <laughs> January 18th, please donate. <laughs> yeah, and so it's I, like, I always find that, you know, difficult challenge for myself, you know, asking people for money for our organization. And, but I, I really appreciate what you were saying earlier, you know, kind of just about, about sharing your enthusiasm and your passion for the project and, having that be kind of a latch for other people to, to, to invite them into your space. Yeah. Yeah. Ashley,
0: I, I'm curious what your motivation is to create, because do not not only do you create beautiful music, you create, I think you're a, a atmosphere creator and, and Ooh, that's why. I'm going
1: to use that. <laughs> yeah.
0: That's why people hire you and they bring you into their organization because you, you must create an atmosphere of, of like giving and warmth and kindness and, and happiness. Otherwise they wouldn't want to be around you. So what's your motivation to create?
1: I think at the end of the day, when I get brought on to organizations and I say yes to an organization, it's because I actually believe in their community. And like, this all comes back to like our one of our initial conversations today. It's like, for me, everything is about the community that I'm in and the community that I support. So, if I don't feel like the organization is going to support the community, I don't want to be a part of it. Um, And so, I always want to find the ways that these intersections of my identity and the intersections of the communities that I'm a part of can be benefited. Um, You know, for example, it's like I've been on the board for the Music and Culture Coalition for almost five years now. And, you know, in that sense, I came onto that because, you know, A, it was one of my friends that asked me to be a part of it, but B, I felt it was super crucial to have someone to be that, that intermediary and in service organization at the intersection of policy and culture. Like there wasn't anyone serving that space. Or is it related to the jazz education network? I just saw how crucial it was to have that space um, for like-minded individuals, especially in the jazz realm, like especially jazz educators and jazz students and jazz musicians to like come together and feel like they had that space and to realize, oh, like we're all literally talking about the same language here and I feel comfortable and confident in it. Um, So when I come onto organizations, I really want to make sure that like the communities that they're serving, there is definitely something there to be served. Um, And so I was that is like my key tenant of like, okay, this is exciting to me. And trust me, like I've turned down a lot of clients over the course of many years. And in, especially in this past year, because I felt like they just, I feel like, you know, when someone doesn't get it, (laughs) when, when you say something about the community that you're in, especially this community in, in New Orleans, I think, you know, instantly when you know, someone isn't about, the community and the culture when someone's about um, manipulating the culture for their own personal gain. And so I never want to be associated with that sort of vibe. You know, I that's like the last thing I want to be a part of.
2: That's, I think that's, that's a funny, um, you know, it's it's an interesting thing to hear you say that too, as someone who uh, is not originally from New Orleans. So I feel like um, it, it's, it's really nice to hear you say that in, in the sense that I, I, I can only imagine how you've had to navigate um, that that maybe that, um, you know, dealing with locals, dealing with people who have, you know, dealing like people with like the Andrews who have a multi-generational history with New Orleans and and then finding that place to gain that trust and like, you know, I'm not here for me, I'm here for the community and I, I believe in you and, and, and believe in what we do in New Orleans. And so- yeah. It's, it's, I think that's, that's a very important thing for everyone to kind of like internalize in themselves when they move into a new space and try to, you know, advocate for something like music or New Orleans.
1: Yeah. I mean, to add to your point, Greg, I mean, part of it for me, I think this habit that folks get into when they move into a new city is they make this connection and they ask for a favor right away. And I can assure you that most of the folks that I work with um, could tell you that I don't ask for things. I don't want to be the one that's the public face. You know, like I don't want to be the one that gets all the glory for the thing that our communities have done. Um, and I think that's part of trust building and part of trust building, especially in communities where culture is so prevalent, is that you have to be a part of it and, and learn the lessons over time. Sit down with an elder, literally listen to conversations, know their stories, know where they're from, know about the people who taught them because the people who taught them is what they sound like, you know. And so it's all of these really crucial things that that really help you build this space. But, you know, I never want to ask for a favor right off the bat when I go into these spaces. That's part of how you build this level of trust. The second you go in and you're like, okay, it's great to meet you. Like, can I have a gig now? (laughs) That's not how this works. (laughs) You know, like, that's not how it works. You have to show that you're trustworthy to do that.
2: Cause, 'Cause the thing is too, is like I, I don't think people really understand, like with again, like someone like Charlie Gabriel or anyone at Preservation Hall or any of these these cultural bearers here in New Orleans. I mean, back in the before times, um, that's that's how, people are walking up to them every single day, every night, multiple times, like, oh, I just moved from here or there, or can you do this for me? Can I have that? And it's like no, you have to. You have to get to know this person for a year. Yeah, for, for you have to you have a to build a relationship time. with him first. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. who are you? <laughs> like, yeah, it takes time. It's patience. I, I love that too. It's it's, it's it, ear training. You were talking about listening earlier. It's it's ear training. You gotta you gotta shut the f up and listen
0: first. Now, <laughs> a- Ashley, we've been talking about all these positive things about New Orleans, and I'm curious uh, culturally if you could name three ways that would benefit not only new orleans but america some ways that we could grow as a country uh that would improve <laughs> the quality of life
1: the, like what that's like the biggest question yeah. you could have asked me the most <laughs> unprepared i could be for a question
0: now, you know everything i i, I have faith no
1: i don't i have my <laughs> own level of things that i need to learn about constantly and if <laughs> i haven't learned one new thing in the day i find that as Very troubling. (laughs) Okay. So three things that like the U.S. or the world can take from us culturally to learn from? Or
0: Or just some things that we can get better as a culture. Three things that we can get better at.
1: Okay. I'm going to start with the first one. Um, To pay musicians adequately for their service (laughs) to this field. I mean, music has, let's be honest. Music has gotten us through a heck of a lot of stuff during this time frame, and it doesn't get treated with the same level of respect as other disciplines. I mean, I think in particular, I'm going to identify this city in particular, this city has not, you know, does things like, oh, you know. We don't really have money to like support you or give you direct funding. Um, no nonprofit organizations that have asked us to give money from this fund to people. We don't have that kind of money. Oh, but can you appear on this for exposure? And it's like, you know, this city is a really great example of, you know, how our music industry has not, become as like large as other areas it's not in LA it's not in Nashville for multiple reasons and one of them is the way that music is treated as like this you know thing that you can just go to the corner store for and pop in and pop out um, without giving any sort of respect towards it you know especially from tourists in particular I'm speaking about you know it's treated as this thing that oh like I'll drop a dollar in and maybe that can sustain a person in their life Um, I mean, I'm speaking with so much sarcasm right now, just in the sense of like,
2: don't spend this all in one place. That's right.
1: <laughs> well, it's just, yeah, music here versus music anywhere else is just treated so radically different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would start there. It's like pay musicians for their time, pay our culture bears for a time, um, for the work that they're doing because it provides relevancy and it is the thing that is sold for tourism in this city Yeah. time and time again.
2: And so. I just have to say also, you know, throughout this entire pandemic, you know, shout out to the uh, New Orleans city government for making it as difficult as possible for the cultural bearers to survive because from chart, you know, coming up with ordinances to get a permit to do a, a porch concert, you know, a porch concert at your own house to, you know, not coming up with any type of relief package or not allowing live concerts. or I mean, it's like, come on, you know, like people are not coming here for the, you know, the Wall Street of the South or whatever, whatever is happening. They're coming here for the service industry, for the musicians, for the entertainment. And I mean, throughout this entire pandemic, like I, I have so much love and admiration for. People must be going through such a hard time. And I really don't think the city appreciates what we do for them. Because without without the musicians, the culture varies. I mean, the city is not shit. There's, there's nothing happening here.
1: That's true, that's true. Um, I mean, that's number one on my list. I feel like that covers a lot of categories on my list of like the three things that need to change. I mean, let's also be realistic about, you know, things coming from the city find ways to build community in your city and there are so many places that just feel like any town usa because there is no community there is no culture there and that is also this is about to me me being a little weird and ranty it's also a product of capitalism hey. um, because you know capitalism has impacted a lot of things and a lot of reasons why so much of you know, other communities is so whitewashed. Mm. It's like, we got to be this thing because that's what society has told us that we need to be. Um, When in fact, you can be very rich in culture and and live a very wonderful and rich life. Yes, we are all still struggling right now. And I want to emphasize everyone here is very much so struggling without gigs and without work and without pay and without relief. But we are very rich culturally because there are people here that are trying to actively keep this culture alive. Yeah. So that's my number two. Okay. <laughs> All,
0: right. All right. Um,
1: I don't think I have a third one in this. I felt like the first two covered a lot. All
2: right, I'm with that. I'll, I'll accept that <laughs> Is answer. Is that
1: okay? Can you accept that as my I'll, answer? I'll accept I mean, that. I, can...
2: <laughs> I think I, th- I really like the first point that you made about paying musicians because I, I feel like you know it's it's it it's to me. I mean, maybe it goes into the the capitalism thing too, but I feel like it's a, it's just you pay someone that you respect, and then you pay them fairly because you respect them, and you're going to get paid fairly, and you're going to make the money you deserve because someone respects you, and that it go it goes around in circle. And but if you stop it somewhere, it really messes up the system, you mm-hmm. know. And, and I think we have to do a better job of compensating the musicians here in New Orleans. Absolutely. And, yeah. And, and again, like providing opportunities, like I, I know you're doing through the uh, the Shorty Foundation and the many organizations that you work from, but to also uh, work to empower and educate the next generation of musicians that they, you know, it's not going to be a fight that's just going to be given up. We have to really um, advocate for ourselves and, you know, coming maybe when this pandemic ends, you know, just just to bring bigger, a greater awareness as to, you know, we, we just can't jump back into the clubs playing for tips and back right. in the yeah. streets and things like that. We really need to step this up. Right, exactly. Yeah, just for all those people putting $1 in
0: the bucket for seven people on stage, you know, I mean, I mean you know, I'm no math genius, but <laughs> that ain't going to do it. I don't do know it. how you
2: divide one by seven. Come man. on now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Ashley, we're, we're coming up on the end here, and I do want to give you an opportunity to tell all of our listeners uh, where they can connect with you and oh, cool. maybe which organizations they, they should donate to and give all their yeah. money to ASAP.
1: Sounds great. Right. Um, so you can find me online. I have my own website out of necessity I'm out of, at ashleyshivankaray.com. So it's just my name. Um, if you could, you know, it's a game. Can you spell my last name? Great. You have access to my website. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I am also on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, my handle is at uh, Right. <laughs> it's a lot easier to remember and easier to spell than Shivanka. Right? I'll tell you that much. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then in terms of organizations, um, first and foremost, definitely donate to organizations that have black and brown leaders because there are few and Far between in terms of how many of us exist. Mm. Um, just a quick statistic there 80% of nonprofit organizations are white led. Mm. Um, so, you know, those of us that are black and brown, please support us more. Thank Absolutely. you. Um, and uh, like Second Line Arts Collective. Hey. Um, what was that? <laughs> what? Like, what? Go to Second Line Arts Collective's website and donate right now. That's yes. Right. Okay, it. cool. Great. Um, <laughs> but in terms of other organizations you can support, um, I want to give a shout out to an organization I've been working with for five years, uh, Macno Music and Culture Coalition in New Orleans. If any of you in New Orleans kind of have wondered who has been fighting the fight for you in terms of policy, that is the organization and that is a small team. It's three people doing that work. Wow. Um, so I want to give a shout out to them. Um, You can also support other organizations I'm working with. I work with Upbeat Academy Foundation, which provides uh, music production and uh, performance classes for youth free of charge. In fact, has provided computers to students during this time frame, too, and recording equipment at home. So Mm. definitely go support. Um, Go ahead and support Trombone Shorty Academy because they're doing good work too and you'll see some more wonderful things for musicians coming out of this time frame as well. I'm, like, trying to go through the list of who I work for right now, y'all. I'm like, who do I work for? Um, (laughs) You can definitely support. um, Artist Corps New Orleans has a fiscal sponsor through National Performance Network, but definitely support. We support all schools and arts organizations. Um, So if you ever wondered who helps make those connections and really serves as the district liaison for music education, that's our organization. Shout out to Jonathan Bloom.
2: Mr. Mr. Bloom. He is our...
1: uh, Music education supervisor, essentially, for the city. Um, Man, and Mr. B-
2: Mr. Bloom yeah. is the best.
1: <laughs> he is the best. Like, I love when I get a phone call from Mr. Bloom. Um, but I, I also just want to say in terms of, like, where to give your dollars to, find an organization that you're really into their mission. I mean, I can tell you all day long who to support and who to give your money to, but connect with their mission, like I said earlier. If you like what they're doing, go support it. At the end of the day, go give your money to an organization that is doing good work, that actually is doing the work they're telling you that they're doing. So go do your research too. go look up their 990s. I know that sounds like a weird activity, but like <laughs> go get a glass of wine and read someone's 990s and find out for yourself. if They're actually doing the work they're telling you they're doing because yeah. they're. There are a lot of organizations that tell you that they're supporting musicians in the arts, but aren't doing it in the way that some of these smaller organizations are.
2: <laughs> they're using the money to to pay their $10,000 a month rent to a high-rise building. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, so go do your research uh, and support, you know, especially support organizations that are employing musicians right now. Mm. Um, I think that's or even providing really funds. Those organizations in particular are some real saints. Um, I want to give a shout out to Jazz and Heritage Foundation on that front. They definitely gave some of the most money during this time frame. And I feel like they're going to be giving out another round of money based on what they've been posting recently. Um, They Let's be honest, like, that was a lot of money to give out to a lot of folks in New Orleans.
2: Yeah. And, and they, they did it right away, too. I mean they The did. pandemic hit, and within a month, they had the application, and they were sending checks ASAP. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I just want to note that as well. And and they also give grants out to organizations, which is really tremendous. And let's be honest, all of us that have an organization in New Orleans has probably received funding from Absolutely. Jazz and Heritage. Absolutely. Uh, so I want to give that one a shout out as well. Absolutely. Um, definitely provide funding to musicians directly too you know what just go find a musician you like find their cash app find their venmo find their paypal tip them just do it (laughs) (laughs) i'm just like singing the praises of everyone i'm like here are people i like give them money that's right (laughs) it's my community what a surprise (laughs) that's
2: right I i love that i love that but it, it all comes back to building community, and I think that's a uh, that's a uh, that's a. Uh, I, I love that was the message throughout the day today. It's in, in the many iterations of it, but com- it always comes down to community and the relationships we have with people. And uh, you know, thank Ashley, thank you so much for sharing it's all that with pleasure.
1: us. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. All
2: right, so I will see you out um, on the virtual parade route tomorrow. Yeah,
1: I'll, <laughs> I'll, we'll be at the virtual,
2: <laughs> the virtual you know, Mardi Gras.
1: I'll be throwing virtual beads. I'll be, I don't know. We'll see what happens.
2: (laughs) Definitely. Hopefully be the first and last.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Ashley, thank you so much for coming on the Working Artist Project. Uh, My name is Darian
2: Douglas. And uh, my name is Greg Raji. Thank you very much, Ashley. Thanks, y'all. We'll catch y'all next time. Later.